Choose Linux, episode 19, for October 4th, 2019. Hello and welcome to the show that captures the excitement of discovering Linux. I'm Joe. I'm Drew. And I'm Mel. And here we are for episode 19. Later on we'll be talking about getting started with the cloud, but let's start with distro hoppers. We didn't do it last time, so let's talk about Android x86. This is Android on a normal laptop. How did you two get on then? It actually worked really well for me. I I found it kind of an interesting experiment that definitely has some legs, but it may not be quite there yet. There are some things that don't work, but overall, the entire experience was just like using a phone, but with a keyboard and mouse. I have to say that this is probably the first distro hop that I will declare a complete failure on my part. But I will say that it was not for lack of trying because I tried the install on three different boxes and then I even tried using it through the USB key and every single one of them had different issues. For example, the little idea pad that I keep talking about that was running so well on Endeavor OS. I thought to myself, okay, if Android OS can run on a phone, it should be able to run on this device. So I booted it in and it was just one of the worst experiences I've ever had. It was so slow. And, you know, Joe called it that I was going to hate trying to use it with a keyboard and mouse instead of being able to just touch the screen because instinctively that's what you want to do with it. And I could not get a second monitor to actually work. Like it would mirror, but actually having another monitor, I don't think it was built for that. So the journey there just did not go well at all. Well, I never tried it with an external monitor, but for the most part, for me, the install was pretty painless. It was just like when you get a new Android phone at the store and you boot it up, it asks you for your Google credentials and everything that I would expect to have happened happened. And after that, it went right into the system and you've got a nice little desktop and a choice of a couple of different launchers, which I thought was pretty interesting. Yeah, you've got a traditional type launcher, which just feels like a a normal tablet or phone interface. But then you've got one called Taskbar, which is very much like a traditional desktop, like I'm used to with XFCE with a panel on the bottom and windowed applications. And That seems perfect for a laptop to me. How easy did y'all find it to switch between the two? Because after the initial option, really the only option I could choose was has to be always. It wouldn't let me just go back and forth. And something that when you're trying something out for the first time, you probably want to try them both out and see kind of what becomes more intuitive. Yeah, I'm used to using a custom launcher on Android. I use ADW1, so I'm kind of used to this. But yeah, you have to... Say that you want it always, and then if you want to change it, you have to go into the settings and find home, and then you can toggle it between them there. But that's not immediately obvious if you've never done it before. I tried a few different applications, and while some things like Alto's Odyssey wouldn't launch for me, others just weren't available in the store at all, like Netflix. Uh, I even tried going to the browser and see if Netflix would work in Chrome, and it just told me that it was missing components. So unfortunately, no Netflix here, but I was able to install and run Plex without any issues whatsoever as a native app. The only thing I kept thinking throughout this whole process is like, why? It's the old, we could do it, 
but why did we bother? Why are we doing it? You know, it, it wasn't quite what I wanted on phone because it's now on this laptop and it wasn't what I needed in a laptop because many of the things that I use for my day to day, like, you know, Visual Studio Code. Yep, I actually use it. I couldn't get up and running. And I thought, well, why would somebody running Android want to be able to use certain apps? So I don't know. This just was not for a practical everyday use case for me. No, I think that as your daily driver, this is just not going to work. I think that it does have a place, though. I test these distros on a little Vivo book. I've talked about it before. It's got a touch screen, and so it's absolutely perfect for this. The only problem is that sometimes on live boot, the touch screen just wouldn't work at all. Uh, but then once I installed it, it would. I tried the 32-bit version, and that would work. So it was kind of hit and miss. But um, once the touch screen is working... It's sort of perfect for this little laptop. It's pretty underpowered. It's only got four gigs of RAM. It's never going to really be that useful for actual work. But for a little entertainment laptop, I can kind of see the use case. And I have run Android x86 on it before, but it's never really stuck around because ultimately, I suppose there's not much that you can do with Android that you can't do with Linux, but it doesn't go the other way because you can always do so much more with proper GNU slash Linux. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And, you know, as far as kind of a toy to play with on a laptop, it's pretty fun. Like, I've got my phone, but it's on my laptop. If nothing else, it's neat. And sometimes that's enough. Yeah, you're right. It is just good fun to play with, I suppose. And it doesn't necessarily have to be that useful for it to be cool. One of the things that I ran into that you guys might not have is after I got off the idea pad, I went to my actual physical tower. This is the box that had been running Cubes OS, and I tried to install it on it, except there's no wireless card. I'm actually using Ethernet. So that was a different experience with having to try to configure virtual Wi-Fi, because as a phone OS, it really was never meant to work with an Ethernet port. And once I got that set up, I thought I was going to be okay, but it just ended up in this endless rebooting cycle. So I'm thinking maybe they haven't figured those bugs out yet. Well, I didn't try Ethernet. I think I have tried Ethernet before, maybe, but maybe not. That sounds like a bit of a nightmare, really. It sounds like a little USB dongle would make your life a lot easier on that desktop. Yeah, and the laptop that I used is an X1 Carbon, which doesn't come with an Ethernet port by default, and I was not going to dig out the dongle that I needed for that. Did either of you attempt to run it just on the USB key? Because when I did, I was really kind of surprised there was no session persistence. It was just kind of a brand new boot every single time. Yeah, I did. And yeah, that is a bit of a shame because it would be the perfect use case for it, I think. You just kind of want to boot up your laptop occasionally and use Android, especially if you've got a laptop with a touchscreen. But you don't want to necessarily configure a dual boot because I did try and configure a dual boot and um, Grub did not detect my other OSs on there, so it didn't detect Zubuntu. And then when I did boot repair in Zubuntu, it didn't detect it. So I was going to configure Grub manually, but then I just ran out of, I don't know, patience, time, caring... I think that was the perfect way to describe how my challenge ended as well, because I had the USB dongle in and the laptop went to sleep and I couldn't bring it back up. So I had to turn it off and turn it on again. And I just unplugged it and never looked back. Yeah, I think it is worth people trying out, though, if only just for the fun of it, because that's kind of the point of hopping around all these distros. Yeah, ultimately, 
you might be looking for something that's useful, but it is fun to try everything out while you get to that point. Yeah, I mean, kind of in a way, it reminds me of, you know, the old garage days where it's like, here's this weird piece of hardware. Can I get it to work? And then when you do, even if you're never going to touch it again, just the fact that you did it and you got it to work and you got a result, it makes you feel good. And so I have to wonder if that might be part of where the developers are coming from is just this curiosity with computing where they just kind of wanted to and it doesn't really matter if a bunch of people are going to use it. It's just fun. Y'all have a very strange definition of fun. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there is another side to this as well, and that is the idea of taking an Android phone and plugging it into a screen and using it as a desktop temporarily. And I think that that is a lot of the driver behind it as well, is developing something that can work as a touchscreen device and also as a more useful desktop. And it's kind of a stepping stone towards that. That use case, that is something that I have done on my Android device. And that's when I've run into issues with presentations and having my laptop is just pulling up my slides on my phone, plugging it in, mirroring it and doing my talk with just flipping through my phone. So I can say that is a use case that I would do. And yet that's been kind of a golden dream for a long time now, hasn't it? This whole idea of convergence or um, what is it that Samsung calls it these days? Dex? Dex, yeah. A lot of people have had a go at this. And it's never been massively successful. So maybe it is a bit of a pipe dream that's never going to come through. But I would find it useful, I think, to some extent. Although really, the best kind of convergence that I've ever used is Maru OS, which is Android on the phone, and then you plug it in, and then you get a proper Linux desktop. It's Debian with XFCE in a container, which is really, really useful. So um, if you have a supported device, I do recommend that to people. And see, now, L, for you, this idea sounds about perfect to me. Because imagine if you could get on a plane with just your phone and a collapsible keyboard and tiny little mouse and walk into a hotel room, plug your phone into the TV in the hotel room, and suddenly have a desktop with you right there without having to take a laptop. I think that would be the dream. But then I go, hmm, security concerns, radar, radar. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, but, uh, you know, in a perfect world, assuming that the security is solid, you know, uh, the idea that you don't have to take a laptop with you all across the country is pretty attractive. So hopefully somebody gets it right at some point, and maybe it'll be the Android x86 people. Dare to dream. All right, well... I don't think this is going to be sticking around for long for many of us. Used occasionally, I think. So let's have a look for next time. Let's go to distrowatch.com, click the random distribution button, and uh, Chaos, K-O-S, Chaos, which is an independent distro that features the latest version of KDE desktop environment. And, um, yeah, this is kind of a showcase for KDE. I've heard of this. I may have tried it once or twice. Have you two ever used this? My first time hearing about it. I believe I've heard of it once before many years ago, but I don't think I've ever touched it, no. It also says on Watch that it was inspired by Arch Linux, but the developers build their own packages which aren't available from in-house repositories. So this should be an interesting one. Look forward to trying it out. We talked there about trying different desktop distros out and playing with Linux kind of for the fun of it and also to learn. 
But there came a point in my Linux life where I kind of wanted to expand my knowledge into running Linux without a desktop. And that started with running machines on my LAN, but eventually led to the cloud. And that's something that you've been learning quite a bit about recently, Al, isn't it, with AWS? Yeah, this last month or last two months, I've been running an AWS study group to help people who are getting started get their cloud practitioner uh, certification. I will say, though, that I am not new to the cloud as a whole, as I spent two years working with OpenStack and Rackspace and the OpenStack Foundation. Well, sure. And I've got some experience, too. I mean, not only do I host some things myself on my own private LAN, on my own private server, but I've played with some cloud servers in the past, especially when I worked for an MSP and doing things more on the business side, but I did have the opportunity to play with some fun things on occasion. So this is definitely a topic dear to my heart as well. So my advice to someone looking to get into this would be to use an old laptop or desktop install some sort of server OS on it, like Ubuntu server. That's what I would go for because it's nice and easy. And just get started that way. But not everyone has that spare laptop or desktop or even Raspberry Pi. And so sometimes the cloud just kind of makes more sense. And it's not always an expensive thing to do, right? Yeah, I think that most of our listeners uh, know that I'm getting to the point now where my advice once was, you know, go ahead and put Linux on an old hardware. And now my advice is take a sledgehammer to that old hardware and just <laughs> use the cloud. Um, and it's because, no, it, it doesn't have to be expensive. There are so many free options out there, even when it comes to, you know, AWS's free tier where you can get like EC2 instances, which are virtual private cloud servers. Same thing as you would probably get in a VM that you can use for free. And they even have um, AWS LightCell, which is targeted for newer users that lets you use kind of a GUI-based application to monitor your resources, to create them. So it's really new user-friendly, and I don't really understand why more people aren't taking advantage of it. Well, there's a perception that AWS is expensive. And I think that's true for larger users, but for the smaller fish like us, you know, it's a drop in the bucket for how large their operation is, and they can afford to give away those CPU cycles. Well, that's true. And there's companies like DigitalOcean where you can get various free trials as well. So it doesn't necessarily have to cost anything, at least at first. I did talk about this in a previous episode. When we were working with deploying Hugo, I kept running into issues with the installation. I'd done the snap package. I tried to do it from source. And it got to the point where I was just having to try to actually erase things and remove them from my laptop. And I thought, well, this is just ridiculous. So I went to AWS. I spun up an EC2 instance, and I started working out of there. And when I made a mistake there, guess what I did? I deleted it and spun up a new one. I didn't even have to wait for the other server to be deleted before I could be working again. So I think that you know, it's just a very practical use case when you're trying new things out. And I can tell you, I didn't even use enough resources to get billed with all the different servers that I spun up during that time. Yeah. And a lot of the other providers like Linode have an hourly option as well. So you can spin servers up, use them, test them out. And then if you want to get rid of them, then potentially you've only paid just pennies per hour to, to run them. But I suppose the question is, what should people use these cloud services for? Well, that's always a question, isn't it? Like, every time I've bought a Raspberry Pi, I get it. And then there's that question of, well, what now? And the truth of the matter is, there are a million things that you could do with it. 
it's just a matter of your creativity and your needs. So if you're looking to fill a specific need, there's probably a project out there to do that. I have to agree with you, Drew, on that. And it's one of the reasons that I've actually loved Amazon LightCell. And I don't want to seem like I'm just pushing Amazon. That just happens to be the environment that I've been working on. And when I went in and I'm looking at LightCell, like if I want a WordPress instance, I literally just tell it, hey, I want this on Linux. I tell it what version of Linux I want, you know, Ubuntu 16.04 or CentOS. I could even choose FreeBSD if I wanted to. Then I tell it, I want you to install WordPress on here or Magento. Drupal, I could even do Plex, and it takes care of the entire deployment. And just really, just at the end, all I have to do is get my credentials, log in, and learn how to use the application. I don't have to worry about learning how to use the OS. And we've talked about that several times. Like, can we get to the point where the underlying OS is not the most important part of our journey? I have to disagree with you here because DigitalOcean has this option as well, the one-click apps, they call it, where you can just get WordPress or whatever it is that you want. And I think that that is an incredibly useful feature if you already know how to install these applications manually. But I think in terms of learning, I at least would prefer to learn how to do that, how to set up the database, how to install PHP, you know, how to do all of the building blocks of it first and understand that whole process And then once I know how to do it, then I just go for the one-click apps and, okay, I need a WordPress blog, just click the button, done. Don't you think there is some value in getting down and dirty and learning the nuts and bolts of it all? Is there value in the end for it? Yes. Does it have to be where you start? No. I can tell you when I was learning Kubernetes, I started learning by actually doing the deployment myself and learning how to install all the packages. And if I had it to do over again... I would have done it the other way. I would have done the click one button. There's my Kubernetes cluster. I learned to use it. I use the practical use cases. I learned the actual application so that I can understand what those components that I'm installing are actually doing instead of just monkey and keyboard trying to figure it out. You know, I've always gone at it from the the direction that Joe tends to prefer, which is learn how first and then find the shortcuts after. But I actually do kind of like that idea of get going with something first and then figuring out all of the underpinnings after. If for no other reason, then it stops you from doing the copy-paste dance. Too many times have I gone at a project and found uh, some level of instructions where it's, here's the commands that you need. And I will just look at those commands and maybe skim them a little bit, but not truly understand what they're doing and just copy and paste them in until I get a working product. And I I really feel like I shouldn't be doing that, right? And I'm wondering if taking your approach, L, of getting the one-click app going first and then learning how it all works underneath would curb that behavior. I think there's a lot of arguments that are made that we have to learn how to do the install and everything from the ground up so we can later go back and troubleshoot it. And I don't know, I'm of the mindset that that's not so much the case anymore because let's say I have a WordPress instance and I'm taking snapshots, which is available you know, through any cloud provider at a click of a button, and something breaks, I'm not going to go back and try to troubleshoot it from the ground up. I'm just going to spin up a new instance from the snapshot. Like, 
we don't do a lot of troubleshooting anymore when the end goal is just to have, you know, high availability or to have uptime for something that we're playing with. Well, this also ties in with containers, things like Docker, where it's trivial to just pull down a Docker image and you just instantly get going. Containers is definitely something that I've spent quite a bit of time playing with, Joe. And, oh, you're dragging me back to that old world. But yes, containers have made it extremely easy to be able to quickly deploy things um, on either a cloud or physical server. But as someone who has broken a containerized environment before, I can tell you that I'd prefer to do it on the cloud so I can just delete and start over from either a snapshot or all over again. So are you saying that you'd prefer to have a few different virtual private servers all running their own individual applications rather than one bigger, beefier VPS that just has something like Docker running loads of different containers? I definitely do. Um, But I think that just comes back from my OpenStack days of thinking of everything in high availability. Like I build out and I build loosely. That way if one component fails, it doesn't take everything down with it. And it's something that I can replicate and put back into its place. So to me, that's just easier to keep my environment. And for example, let's say that I am working with WordPress. I would rather have the database completely separate than on the same system. So if one goes down, the other doesn't go with it. And forgive me, I never did this at large scale, but isn't this kind of the idea behind Kubernetes and Docker Swarm and other technologies that view VMs as nodes? It is. And if you are working in a huge company where you're running thousands of applications and you're doing this at a grand scale, that's great. However, if it's me playing with one WordPress instance that, I don't know if I'm lucky, I get 200 visitors to a month, that's just on such a broad scale that it's not something that I would actively be starting out with. Does that make sense? Well, that does make sense. But it's interesting that you go for a separate database server because, say, for example, you want a WordPress blog or a podcast, you could go for something that's around $5 a month from a lot of the the different providers. and there's no reason why you can't have your database and PHP and even potentially your MP3 files if you're only getting a couple of hundred downloads all contained within that one virtual private server that's only costing you $5 a month. I haven't used DigitalOcean, so I can't speak to their pricing model. But the way that I've played with it is I, you know, on AWS or when I was using OpenStack, obviously I wasn't playing per component. But on AWS, you know, my S3 is free up to five gigabytes. And even after that, the price is so low. And then if, let's say, one of the data centers goes down or something, it's already replicated all over the world. So I don't have to face downtime. If my server goes down, then it can be quickly spun up somewhere else. And I don't have to worry about, did everything come up exactly the way that it was supposed to? I'm only worried about that one component. So I think it just goes back maybe from the admin days that even when I'm just playing with something, if I want it to be up, I want to guarantee that I have that fault tolerance. I want to guarantee that it's going to be there when I want to play with it. But doesn't that mean more moving parts and more complexity and more to learn ultimately? Maybe it goes back to the way that everyone learns, but to me, that hasn't been the case at all. You know, I I learn how to work on my EC2 instance or my server or just 
deploying WordPress, then I move over and I've got my database that hasn't been affected by anything if I ran a system update or if I, you know, installed a plugin on WordPress that just broke everything. And my files are completely safe sitting in an S3 instance that I can just point to the new deployment. Having that decoupling of everything just makes it so that when I have to rebuild, I'm only playing with one Lego set instead of trying to rebuild my entire castle. That's an interesting way to look at it. But With the snapshots that all these cloud providers offer, it feels like that's less of a risk, really, because if you're going to change something, make sure you take one of those snapshots, and then if you mess it up, you can just roll back to it really easily. Oh, for that perfect world, right? (laughs) Where you remember to do the snapshot, I suppose, yeah. (laughs) Well, and you also have things like orchestration with, uh, you know, I use Docker Compose for my personal things, and... It allows me to have a single file that has all of my services and define how they connect to each other, which if my server were to suffer a critical meltdown, I've got a backup of that file. And so long as I have the backup of the individual control and data, I can spin it up anywhere I want and just point them back at those particular folders. And it should be just fine, right? I think it really comes down to just different approaches. It's like the typical story in Linux. There's always five ways to do something. And in this case, there's three slightly different approaches to achieving ultimately the same goal. We're all going to get that WordPress blog up or the Plex server running or whatever. And whether you're doing that with containers or all on one VPS or splitting it up as you do, L, it doesn't really matter. I think you just have to experiment and find the way that suits you. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because given that all of this technology is so distributed and so flexible, whatever works best for a particular user is probably the right way to do it. There's definitely another benefit to learning about the cloud, and that is that you can apply some of that knowledge to the desktop. Because if you're used to being SSH'd into another machine and troubleshooting that, which is inevitable if you're just learning about this stuff, then you'll probably be able to apply that knowledge when things go wrong on the desktop, which you've talked about before, Elle, on this show, when things have gone wrong with the various distros you've tried on the desktop. I can definitely say that's true. And it's been an interesting experience when we distro hop to something where the logs aren't where I expect them to be. So actually having worked in several different versions of Linux on a server makes me more, I guess, adept to start going, all right, where would they be? And just kind of feeling comfortable going through the command line if I can't find the GUI version of the logs that I'm looking for. Well, yeah. And the fact that Knowing more about the internals of Linux as you would in any kind of headless setup, to me, is always a positive. Yeah, and also you're opening yourself up to a lot more web apps that you can install on your local box or on a cloud machine, which can actually be really, really useful to you. I think it makes me get more out of just a few minutes that I have to play with something. Like, you know, I've got 20 minutes. I'm going to spin up a WordPress interest real quick and see what I can do. I don't think I would ever just sit down with my laptop and go, I've got 20 minutes. Let me just see what I can install. I don't know. When I've got 20 minutes, I often find myself just downloading the latest Fedora or Ubuntu Alpha or Beta or whatever and checking it out just live. Well, that's all well and good for you guys, but typically if I've got 20 minutes, I just sit there and catch up on some news. Maybe we all need to learn to unplug, Drew. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, maybe we should actually go outside. No, that can't be right, can it? (laughs) It's too bright out there. Not in London, it's not. (laughs) Let me tell you. (laughs) 
All right, well, we'd better get out of here then. If you want to get all the future episodes, go to choose slash subscribe. And if you want to get in contact with us, choose linux.show slash contact. And you can find us on Twitter. I'm at L underscore O underscore punk at LO punk. I'm at Drew of Doom. And I'm at Joe Rissington. We'll be back in two weeks. Mm-hmm.